0: What's stopping you You, you. from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN, the Thursday edition of our program. Very glad to have you with us today. We're not going to be taking your phone calls, though, because we're doing a special mailbag program today. The uh, the old mailbag's getting a little on the full side, so I think we need to kind of empty it out here and answer some of the questions that you've uh, sent to us over the past few weeks. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. That would be our producer, uh, Charles Berry, me, Tom Price, and... Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Great. Are you ready to dive into the mailbag? Let's plunge. A fascinating question here from Al in Columbia, Missouri, who says, On a recent show, Dr. Anders quoted Matthew 24, 37 in response to a question. This is all about uh, Noah and the ark. Since Jesus mentions Noah and the ark, how is it possible that Dr. Anders doubts the truth and accuracy of the flood account in Genesis? I say Jesus cannot lie, so the flood account in Genesis happened. Thanks, Al, in Columbia, Missouri.
1: All right, several things to remark on there. First of all, as I was mentioning to Tom before the show began today, yes. uh, Frodo and Sam went to Mordor. Right? <laughs> That's true. True. That's true in the story. Yes. Right. And so uh, Christ is, of course, capable of referencing a biblical narrative as a narrative and to draw a moral lesson from the narrative without passing judgment, in particular, on the question of the geological history of Earth that, Uh, that may or may not be indicated by that story. Now, you ask, how can I personally think that the flood of Noah is not an historical event? And particularly with reference to the person of Jesus, Jesus himself, when he does engage the Old Testament and sort of philosophizes about it, if you will, he he, uh, he he does not approach the Bible the way, say, a modern fundamentalist Protestant would approach the Bible. A good example would be in Matthew chapter 19. This is a moral issue, not a historical one, but Matthew chapter 19, uh, when the Pharisees come to Christ and say, uh, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus says, no. Well, they rightly noted that the Old Testament says the contrary. It says that he can. And so they want to know, Jesus, where do you get off saying that a man cannot divorce his wife when the book of Moses says that he can? And Jesus' answer was, well, Moses put that in there because of your hardness of heart. But it wasn't like that from the beginning, and he gives another moral principle. Now, the point I'm getting at is that Christ has no problem relativizing the content of the Old Testament with reference to some higher principle, in this case it would be the principle of charity uh-huh. overruling the, the the strictness of the Mosaic law. Now Saint Paul applies that same principle that, that charity is the is the hermeneutical principle that defines Old Testament interpretation, mm-hmm. uh, but he seems to apply it to historical narratives themselves. So he takes, uh, for example, the story of uh, of um, of Hagar and Sarah. Uh, or the story of the Exodus as allegories for uh, events within the the Christian Church and within the interior life of Christians. Uh, St. Augustine, of course, Mm -hmm. one of the Church Fathers who follows St. Paul very much like this, does the exact same thing with the Genesis narrative. He sees Genesis 1 to 11, reads this text in a very allegorical way, and believe it or not, makes the claim that it's not as much about the creation of the space-time universe as it is an allegory for the creation of the Church. Hmm. So there's a there's a tradition embedded within the New Testament itself, uh-huh. and given expression and articulation within the history of Catholic exegesis, of not taking the Old Testament at face value in its denotative sense the way a modern fundamentalist would. Now, when it comes to questions about, say, Earth's geological history— I don't look to the Bible for answers to those questions any more than I would look to the Bible for a recipe for a good lemon meringue pie, <laughs> right? It's, it's, the, it's, it's a category mistake. I would look to what natural science can tell me about the geological history of the Earth, and uh, though not a geologist myself, my understanding is uh, no geologist thinks that the Noah story would be an accurate description of Earth's geological history. And since it is a dogma of the Catholic faith— that faith and reason can never be in conflict, and if they seem to be, you better go back to the drawing board and do your work more carefully, Uh, that it is perfectly legitimate to bring the, the conclusions of scientific inquiry to bear on our understanding of the biblical text. That's a principle that we find in the earliest books of Catholic hermeneutics, like Augustine's On Christian Doctrine, where he talks about how to interpret the Bible and the role that reason and science play in that.
0: Al, thank you so much uh, for your email. Thanks for listening to us in Columbia, Missouri. Interesting question here from Mary. She says, and you're going to love this, David, I heard from a Catholic website that you shouldn't name your guardian angels because since angels are higher than you, it's like a dog naming their owner. What do you think is best?
1: Right. So i uh, to take the dog metaphor in hand, I yes. don't really have a dog in this fight, all right, <laughs> but I can make a few observations. Okay, sure. First of all, um, angels are maybe higher in the metaphysical hierarchy, but not necessarily higher in the um, in the mind of God relative to the purpose of creation. So, so God created the world so that human beings could enter into loving relationship with him through the incarnation of Christ, and it's compelling that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, assumed a human nature and not an angelic nature, which he mm-hmm. could have done. He could have assumed an angelic nature, but didn't yeah. assume a human nature. So there's a unique uh, relationship between the human person and Jesus. And with an eye uh, to salvation history and our own story of redemption, the New Testament is clear that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So they are—whatever uh, th- whatever their whatever their metaphysical hierarchy is— in the, in the order of service, they serve us. That's what Scripture says. So I don't know that I buy the argument that it would be like a dog naming its master, because angels are not our masters. The Lord is our master, but they're actually our servants. Um, now, uh, interestingly, our very own Mother Angelica here at EWTN was pretty forthright about having named her guardian angel. Right, I remember listening to her talk about. I think she called him Fidelis. I think that was her name for her guardian angel. So okay. okay. If you want to, if you want to go with Mother Angelica, you know, go right ahead. Uh, I personally have not named mine because I figure he's probably got a name, and uh, and I don't know what it is. And you know, my name's David. Would I like it if somebody named me Ralph and just started calling me Ralph? You know, so that's a matter of personal preference, I suppose.
0: So sooner or later you will find out the name of the guardian angel, but this is not the time, probably. Uh, well, if we find out, it'll be later. Okay. Very good. And thank you uh, so much for your question, Mary. Glad to answer that here on this special edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. Again, uh, we're doing a mailbag edition of our program today, so we're not taking your phone calls. But hey, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you know, the mailbag gets full, it gets empty, it gets full, it gets empty. Love to hear from you. And here's the address, ctc at EWTN.com. It's uh, the Thursday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. We're doing a special edition of our program today, a mailbag program. So uh, please don't call in because um, we're not going to be taking those calls. We're instead going to be answering... Uh, Some emails that you have sent to us over the past couple of weeks and on programs like The Mailbag Show, we always like to uh, save the longer emails that we receive and uh, answer those questions on mailbag programs when we have a little more time to stretch out. Here is an interesting question from AC in New York who says, Dear Dr. Anders, the Church teaches that salvation is possible outside the catholic church this is consistent with scripture which teaches that god wants all to be saved we are saved by grace so god must then send every one of his children enough grace to be saved some will receive more than others such as the blessed mother but all enough to be saved so how does the church reconcile this with the bread of life discourse in the gospel of john where jesus says Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, outside the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches, who do not receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, have no life in them. But it would seem that, again, based on Scripture, they can still be saved, and What does this mean for those who were once members of these churches, but then sadly walked away? Thanks, A.C. in New York.
1: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So it's important to recognize that Catholics are not saved simply in virtue of receiving Holy Communion, right? Going to Holy Communion is not a a get-into-heaven-free card. Okay. Uh, The purpose of Holy Communion as a sacrament, like all the sacraments, it's a means to an end. And the end is conformity to Christ in charity, right? St. Paul says the offering of our bodies and living sacrifices is our spiritual act of worship. That's what we're ultimately aiming at, imitation of Christ, assimilation of his divine personality, being like Jesus in the world, so that he can say to us in justice, well done, good and faithful servant. And Christ has put means into the world to bring us to that conformity to him. Now, obviously, the more explicit and tangible the means, the more manifest the means— uh, the more effective uh, uh, they will be and the, the, the easier they will be to to access and to assimilate. So the Eucharist is very visible. It's very tangible. Um, it, it lies in the heart of the Catholic community. So access to the Eucharist means access to all the riches of Catholic identity and Catholic membership. Um, and that is a powerful and efficacious means of bringing the soul to sanctity, and it's the normative means, it's the means, the public means that Christ put in the world. It doesn't mean there are no other means. There are other means, but this one is the one, this one is the public revelation of Christ that he calls all people to, not not just because he wants me individually to be saved, but the Catholic Church is also the the sign and instrument of humanity's union, right, That that Christ criticizes the attitude that says, you know, tax collectors and sinners love their relatives, but I call you to love your enemies. I call you to love people from that other tribe, that other group, you know, that hated political party, whatever it is, right? We're supposed to... The the, the scope of our love goes to the, the whole universe, right? And uh, and the Church is the means of effecting that Catholic, small-c, universal, draw-all-people-together kind of unity. So it's incredibly important. Uh, but because God wills all to be saved, he, he's not going to condemn someone to hell just in virtue of the fact that they haven't been a card-carrying participant. Uh, but think of it this way. When God called Israel in the Old Testament, he didn't call Israel for Israel's sake alone, but for the sake of the world. He called Abraham so he could be a blessing to all the nations. The, the blessing of being a member of the Catholic faithful is not only that I have access to this grace in my own life, but I get the privilege of being a participant in this magnificent enterprise of attempting to reconcile the world to God and to one another. Right, so that's it's a vocation, right? The, the vocation of being a Catholic, being salt and light in the world. But if someone is saved by the grace of God outside the formal boundaries of Catholicism, it will not be apart from the mediation of our Eucharistic Lord. Okay. Right? It may be in a way that they themselves don't personally recognize, mm. Uh, but but Christ will be involved in bringing them to himself one way or the other.
0: AC, thanks so much uh, for
1: your email today.
0: It is called a communion here on EWTN. Here is an anonymous emailer who says, Hello, my question is this. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, what happened to a soul after death? Was a soul sent to purgatory? hell or heaven, or were they sent to another place? I thought no soul could enter heaven after the sin of Adam and Eve, and that the gates of heaven were sealed shut. Then, after the crucifixion of Jesus, the gates of heaven were opened. But would that mean that before that, only purgatory and hell were available? Thanks for your help, Anonymous.
1: Yeah, thanks, Anonymous. I appreciate the question. So the Catholic doctrine on this is that the righteous dead of the Old Covenant went to something called the Limbus of the Fathers, which is a place of natural happiness that's not the beatific vision. And the beatific vision was only available after the ascension of Christ.
0: Okay, and there it is.
1: Here's one now from uh,
0: Ava. Dr. Anders, where did baptism come from historically? When first-century Jews went to be baptized by John the Baptist... What did they think was happening there? Did baptism have sacramental value before Jesus' baptism? Thanks for your help on this question and for your work on the show. All the best, Ava.
1: Thanks, Ava. I appreciate the question. So, in the Law of Moses, there are a number of prescriptions about the use of water for ritual purification— uh, and, uh, and sometimes the necessity of taking ritual baths to purify, say, you know, w- women, for example, after their menses would have to take a bath, and they still have this in Judaism to this day, there's a, there's a bath in the synagogues called a mikvah, where women will go take a ritual bath. And the point is not, is not, uh, you know, elimination of germs or contagion, it's a, it's a ritual purity and ritual impurity, that's okay. the view. But the idea of using water for ritual purposes is, is, uh, is embedded in the Old Testament law as part of Jewish practice. Uh, something like Christian baptism was already in existence in the Qumran community, the Essenes. Uh, we know about that from the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and so it wasn't unusual to uh, for people to submit to some kind of ritual ablution. Uh, and John the Baptist uh, adds the entailment that uh, that this is indicative of a change of heart, um, uh, so it was a sort of a formal renunciation of sin and a desire to embrace a new path of righteousness in anticipation of the Messiah. Now, as to your question, was there any sacramental significance to it, depends on how you use the word sacrament. So in the strict sense, in the Catholic theology, a sacrament is a sign or a symbol instituted by Christ uh, that is imbued with a supernatural efficacy, that the Holy Spirit causes the thing symbolized to be made present in in some fashion, in a way that's genuinely efficacious to bring us to holiness. In that sense of the word, no, those those ritual ablutions of the Old Testament or the intertestamental uh, Jewish experience were not sacraments. There is a looser sense in which we can use the word sacrament to just mean religious rite or sign. And so St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, in the Summa Theologica doesn't hesitate to describe circumcision as the sacrament of the old law. So he'll use the term sacrament, but he specifies... It wasn't effective—big Latin word for a word coming up here, ex opere operato. Circa uh, means uh, merely in virtue of performing the rite. It was not intrinsically efficacious. It was a symbol, right? Okay. So— and, uh, in that sense, you could speak of a sacramental significance of baptism before Christ, but it wouldn't have had that intrinsic efficacy granted by the Holy Spirit. It would have been very much the way modern Baptist Protestants think of baptism today. If you've ever been to a Protestant church like a Baptist church, they're all big on baptism. They're huge on baptism. Oh, but yeah. They think it's merely a symbol, right? Well, they're in, they're incorrect about that, but their attitude about modern baptism is, in fact, what would have happened during the baptism of John the Baptist. Wow. Right? A, a, a mere symbol. And that's, we see that in the book of Acts, because there's a text in Acts where Christian disciples encounter disciples of John the Baptist, asking them if they received the Holy Spirit, and they say, well, you know, I hadn't even heard there was a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? Well, which baptism did you receive? Well, John's baptism. Well, you've got to receive Christ's baptism. That's sacramental baptism that has this intrinsic efficacy to it.
0: All right. Ava, thanks so much for your email. We're doing a special mailbag edition of our program today here on Call to Communion on EWTN. So... No phone calls today, please. Here's any, uh, one of those longer emails. This is from Hubertus. i hope hoping I'm getting, getting that right. Hi, Dr. Andrews. I'd like to ask you whether I can use this verse to respond to questions from Protestants regarding praying for the deceased and purgatory. I interpret the verse in Acts 9.40 concerning the raising, praying for the dead, of Tabitha. In my understanding, if Tabitha's spirit is in hell... According to Christian teachings, it's impossible for those in hell to have another chance to live in heaven. On the other hand, if Tabitha's spirit is already in heaven, it seems absurd for Tabitha to be returned to the world to live a mortal life, and it's so absurd saying that Tabitha is the second person from heaven to come to the world after Jesus. Therefore... It is plausible that Tabitha's spirit is in a place that is neither heaven nor hell. Could this indicate that Tabitha's spirit is in purgatory? From this story, two implicit points arise, the practice of praying for the dead and the concept of purgatory. A best regards, Hubert, Hubertus.
1: Oh, I like the way you think, Hubertus. This is wonderful. Yeah. I've actually never thought about that before. Okay. So I, I think your your uh, interpretation is highly plausible uh, would it necessarily be compelling to a Protestant? I doubt it, because I think it's open to multiple possible interpretations, but that's one that I think is plausible. So I would throw it in the mix with other arguments for the Catholic doctrine on the intermediate state.
0: Very cool. Call to Communion here on EWTN. This one is now from Diego. Hey, Dr. Anders, can you explain the Protestant doctrine of total depravity. Does this relate to John fifteen five, in which Jesus says, for apart from me you can do nothing? Thanks, Diego.
1: Um, yes, I appreciate the question. So the Protestant doctrine of total depravity is the belief that every human action is sufficiently vitiated by sin that it is intrinsically hateful to God. And that would include acts of apparent virtue— So this is the Protestant belief. Uh So when Mother Teresa goes and pulls a dying woman off of the street and nurses her, you know, in in, in charity to death, uh, we think of that as a tremendously noble act. The Protestant, to be consistent, would say, well, it may appear noble to us, but Mother Teresa's motives are really suspect. There's some scintilla of self-love, of pride, of hubris, embedded in that act. And so even her act of of pulling, you know, lepers off the street and, and nursing them, uh, is intrinsically hateful to God. Not not that God's against helping lepers, but he they would conclude that Mother Teresa doesn't do it with enough—she's uh, not sufficiently disinterested. There can't be enough of a focus on God's glory to actually merit anything from God. So even the most seemingly righteous act is itself uh, intrinsically hateful to wow. God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, remarked, uh, to his congregation in Northampton, you are you are more loathsome to God than the vilest serpent is in your eyes. Ooh. And we're talking about people who went to church, you know, every week, and were yeah. hyper religious, and from a moral point of view, probably far exceed ninety nine percent of uh, of contemporary Americans, except for the fact that they persecuted anybody that wasn't just like them. That was one small <laughs> blight on their on their moral record. But at least in terms of their you know, within their own community, they would have held some pretty strong moral mm. standards. Um, and yet, uh, that's the kind of judgment that Edwards makes. So it's this this idea that you know God can just barely stand to look at you, no matter what you do, because your 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 life is so vitiated, your soul so vitiated by sin. When I was a Protestant, I was in seminary in college. They would use this metaphor. They would say, "Imagine a pure glass of beautiful water. Drop one drop of black ink in it, and it diffuses through the entire thing, turns it black." Right. In the same way, they would say, "Sin so so vitiate so." permeates the human person. Everything you do is tainted black, um, uh, even the Rolling Stone song, right? But, <laughs> um, but, uh, but that's not the Catholic view. That's not the Catholic view. The Catholic view <clears throat> thinks that we are wounded by original sin, so that we have a tendency, we have wounds that make us tend to certain kinds of moral faults, uh, but that it's not true that every human act is intrinsically hateful to God. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 10 that the Roman centurion Cornelius, who was not a Christian, Uh, Prayed and offered gifts to the poor, and an angel comes and visits him and says, Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up before God as a memorial offering. In other words, God is pleased with him. Therefore, go send to Joppa for a man named Peter who will tell you the way to be saved. Right? I mean, you could find many other instances as well where Jesus specifically remarks, or the prophets specifically remarked, that some human action is valued by God. And it's not intrinsically hateful to him. Mm. So in terms of the origin of the doctrine, exegetically, Protestants are really fond Mm. of that passage in Isaiah 64, 6. uh, uh, We are as an unclean thing, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. They like to quote that out of context. Uh, But really, the doctrine is less an exegetical conclusion as a kind of metaphysical necessity to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Luther's idea that you can't be saved by anything that you do well, if everything you do is hateful to God, that really undergirds that assertion, right? And that the necessity of just free grace given by faith alone. So it's a, it's a metaphysical doctrine, really, more than an exegetical one.
0: Diego, thanks uh, so much for your email. Here's a quick question now from Wendy. She says, I am newly converted, and I have so many questions as I learn the Catholic faith. What is the meaning of the word hosts? Isn't it used a lot in Mass and Scripture, Lord of hosts? Holy 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 Lord God of hosts and so on.
1: Oh, okay, so the word host uh, can mean lots of different things depending on the different context. So when we say Lord God of hosts, we're referring to the hosts of angels. Ah. And so this is the God of armies. This is a military image of God leading angelic armies in battle against the evil ones. So okay. that's the that's the context there. All right. Now, uh, a completely different word that happens to be spelled the same, host, uh, uh, uh refers to the consecrated species that becomes the body of Christ during sacred communion doesn't mean the same thing, right? right? It's a different right. word, but it's just spelled the same.
0: Okay, very good. Wendy, uh, welcome home. We're very glad that you have converted to the Catholic faith. In just a moment, we're going to be returning with lots more great emails here. We've got one from Paul in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Here's one from Tanya. Here's one from Stacy. Looking forward to all of these great emails on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTM. We're doing a special mailbag edition of our program on this Thursday, so uh, please no calls at this time. Here's a great, question, great question now from Paul in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Uh, Tom and Doc, excuse me, Tom and Doctor Anders, thank you for your vocation and your service to the church. Do you think there is a relationship between the idea of once saved, always saved, and the development of the so-called protestant work ethic in other words since there is no fear of missing out on salvation because we simply believe we can chase all of our wants desires etc without having to worry about what to do or don't do for or to others while pursuing these things thanks paul in pennsylvania
1: yeah thanks i really appreciate the question Actually, there's a there is a very famous historical argument about the question that you just raised. Really? Yeah. the 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 uh, the sociologist Max Weber wrote a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism uh, that made the claim that the that the doctrine uh, the Protestant doctrine of predestination, which is not exactly the same thing as once saved always saved, but mm-hmm. it's related to it, yeah. uh, was uh, was indicated in the in the so-called Protestant work ethic. Now his thesis has been debated, and not everybody agrees with him, but you're not the first person to draw that conclusion. Um, so I, I I, would draw the line a little bit differently, however. So it was really important to Luther to eliminate orders within the Church uh, around, say, clergy, laity, and religious. So he wanted to completely eliminate religious life as a Christian vocation. He thought it was ridiculous and that monks were terrible people and you should never be a religious. Really? Yep. Yep. And while the Lutheran Church had ministers, uh, Luther was insistent that there's no ontological difference between a priest and a layperson. So in, in Catholicism, the doctrine is that when you are da- ordained, that there is a there is a sacramental character supernaturally imprinted upon your person that makes you ontologically—that's that is to say, your very being—is mm-hmm. distinct in some respect from from a layperson. In the same way that baptism makes you a member of Christ and you're you're fundamentally a different kind of human being when you're baptized. Uh, the Catholic doctrine teaches that there's something similar that happens with respect to ordination mm. and you it can never be effaced. So you know if you're in heaven you'll here comes this guy oh that's a priest right there he made it to heaven you go to hell you might see a priest in hell go, oh that guy's a priest you know he's got that priest thing going on with him you know that it's it's part of your person from that okay. time on. All right. Luther wanted to get rid of that. And uh, and uh, uh, and say so there's just one class of Christian, they're not clergy laity. Within within Calvinism uh, Calvin himself came from a different social class than Luther. His, uh, uh, he was the son of a cathedral notary, which was a bit like being the son of a lawyer. He went to law school. His friends were aristocrats, and most of his partisans were uh, artisans and people from more educated classes, right? And so the idea of sanctifying work... Uh, and and secular employment was a big part of Calvin's program. Like, he he, th- he saw the Reformation as a way of civilizing the social order. Uh-huh. Um, he thought that the vernacular preaching of scripture, which has an intrinsically pedagogical character, and that would be a kind of a renaissance value, that teaching mm-hmm. and education and literacy are part of what so- society needs. That's sort of a radical idea in the 16th century, right? You think in medieval peasants— Nobody had the idea we could reform society by spreading literature or literacy when there aren't even any books and there's no printing. So all this stuff is a, a development of a particular uh, technological social movement in the early modern period, but it becomes part of Calvin's ideology that, you know, we're, gonna, we're going to raise literacy, we're going to have the vernacular preaching of Scripture, um, we'll have the sort of the, the dignifying of social classes that were previously maybe marginalized in the hierarchical order. Um, all that, I think, plays into an, into an ethic of work. Um, and uh, and i, I don 't personally necessarily think it was related so much to the doctrine of predestination, except insofar as for Calvin, if you were predestined, if you were one of the elect, then you got on calvin 's program right you were you were you were involved productively in church and society the way that he thought you should be and so Weber's um, uh, thesis was that the out of the the sense of need to prove one 's election, right that how do I prove to myself that i 'm elect, how do I prove to my neighbor that I 'm elect? Well, I'd do it by being productively involved in society in the way that Calvin prescribed um, and that would be kind of evidence that I'm on the right path and uh-huh. that 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 kind of could get deformed into the into the very banal conclusion that if I'm doing well financially, then God must be blessing me Oh right? boy yeah. um so i I think that's I think that's, uh, I, I think that's the predestination is related to it, but I don't mm-hmm. think it's quite the way you characterize it but anyway. Go read Max Weber if you want to. Very interesting. Uh, Paul in Lansdale, PA, thank you so
0: much uh, for your email. Here's one of those longer ones. This is from Tanya, who says, I am Tanya from Kansas. I am a mainline Protestant who is married to a Catholic. We listen to your show every night. Well, thanks, Tanya. My husband and I have a question for you. When I have gone to Mass with my husband, I have noticed that during the interlude between the prayers of the people and the sacrifice, as the priest prepares the altar, he washes his hands in a little bowl of water. My seminary-trained brain has interpreted this as a ritual cleansing before offering the sacrifice, much as the Israelite priests would have done. I asked my husband about it. He said when he was an altar server, the priest told him the hand-washing was to signify Pontius Pilate washing his hands of the guilt of sending Jesus to the crucifixion. Well, to me, that doesn't make sense that the church would want to imitate Pontius Pilate during Mass. And I I wondered if maybe the priest had been pulling his leg. Uh, what is the significance of the hand-washing during Mass? Thanks in advance for your answer. Tanya.
1: All right. So thanks, Tanya. I appreciate the question. I'm going to, uh, to pull the veil back and give you a dirty little secret on the meaning of Catholic rituals. Ooh, okay. okay. Historically, uh, as the liturgy develops over the centuries, it will sometimes happen that there is a practice that is centuries old and then someone centuries later will 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 ask themselves the question, "Why do we do this?" Ah. All right? and they will invent an explanation. Right, but sometimes the practices predate the explanations, and and it it, it you know so they are amenable to more than one interpretation. That's my point. Okay. Um, uh, I personally I haven't ever read a description of that rite and theologized about it, but my my intuition is that you're correct that this is a purification prior to handling the sacred elements. Right. Um, but it is... But there, there are plenty of uh, liturgical manuals from the Middle Ages that allegorize the events of the Mass to match events from the Passion of Christ. So I would not be a bit surprised, because I've seen this kind of thing in, in medieval literature before, if there were some Mass text from, say, 1400 that drew that conclusion. Right? So I, I think you could you probably find Catholics that would make both arguments, but I think the stronger case could be made for purification. All right, very good. And, uh, Tanya,
0: thanks so much uh, for listening to the program with your husband. I think that is uh, fantastic. There's a question now from TJ. Would love to get Dr. Andrew's opinion on this scenario. Let's say a person is a devout Catholic, doesn't miss Mass, regularly goes to confession, receives communion, gives to the weekly offering and other charities, strives to live a life of charity towards others. One day, as he's out running errands, he notices a beautiful woman that appeals to him. He lingers a little too long, lets his thoughts wander, thus committing the grave and mortal sin of adultery, as Jesus described. He intends to get to confession at his first chance, but doesn't really make a concrete plan to do so. He is then hit and killed by a drunk driver, on his way home. Wow. Since he didn't die in a, quote, state of grace, as Dr. uh, Andrews has indicated is necessary to be saved, is his entire moral and devout life meaningless and cannot be saved? I realize the Catholic view is that no one knows for sure who is saved and who isn't, so I'm not asking for a dogmatic view, just an opinion from an enlightened Catholic on how this scenario would play out. Thanks, T.J.,
1: Okay, first of all, on the question of being an enlightened Catholic, I'm only enlightened in the sense that I'm standing, sitting beneath a really bright light that's blinding (laughs) me right now in the radio studio. I don't claim any enlightenment beyond that. Okay, all right. Um, uh, So a couple things about the scenario that I want to remark on. One of them is that there's there's a kind of artificiality to it, but I don't think really captures the nature of Catholic life and discipleship. So it's Catholic doctrine, that the kind of life that you're indicating and not just the ritual performance of the sacraments but the but the intent to purify one's interior life to live a life of holiness uh, to grow in prayer and in love of neighbor that that really does lead to moral progress right that it's you know that every every day is not just like the day before in the moral dimension you can go from intemperance and incontinence to continence, that is to say, that you're you're not in fact sinning, but but you still lack the virtue of temperance. It's hard for you to not sin. Okay, uh, progressing all the way to the virtue of temperance, where mm-hmm. not sinning in this way uh, becomes the easy thing to do, right? So so, and then you can progress from merely possessing the virtue of temperance all the way to union with the will. With God in holiness, and that would be the kind of union with God that the saints have, that you know brings them straight to heaven when mm-hmm. they die. Mm-hmm. All right. So along that continuum, the further you move on the path of holiness, the harder and harder it gets for you to sin. And so, in a sense, if you have someone that's that's well advanced on the path to holiness, yeah, for them to actually commit the te- the the sin of adultery would would almost require intense, purposeful effort on their part. You know, like they mm-hmm. they would they would really have to kind of go out of their way to break their habitual mode of thinking, and um, you know there's a there's a difference between someone who is say habituated to pornography and finds it terribly appealing and even familiar, to someone who is so confirmed in purity that they would find the very same thing disgusting, right? And we know that both of those temperaments exist. Sure. Okay. So so first of all, I I, I don't think the scenario that you've raised is. Is probable, right? And the and the Catholic faith is oriented to make that kind of thing impossible or at least highly unlikely. Second of all, the way you've construed the temptation, um, remember that in Catholic doctrine, to be tempted is not the same thing as to sin. And so, to to notice something that is alluring, yeah, and to have the thought occur. That's alluring, and there's, you know, as part of my base and impulsive nature, would would physically enjoy that uh, that uh, that engagement, is not the same thing as to commit the 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 sin of lust, the, the, the positive decision to cultivate uh, an inappropriate sexual arousal at an inappropriate object, right? That's that's different, okay? Um, so so I don't the, the way you've construed the scenario is not the kind of scenario that I would imagine actually happening, right? But let us say you had somebody that, that really was moving down the path to holiness, and, mm-hmm. and then they did decide, for whatever reason, to throw that away and, and, and to turn to some gross and base and immoral act and give themselves up to it, and they weren't repentant. All right, that's the other thing about your scenario, is you assume that as soon as the act is completed that the guy's not repentant. Because, see, confession is the normative way of receiving forgiveness. It's not the only way. You can make an act of perfect contrition, an act of perfect contrition is to 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 express your sorrow that you have offended God and uh, not just because you fear the uh, the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but because you desire to be united to God, who is the greatest good and worthy of all praise. in Thank
0: the you. very scenario he he says he intends to get to confession at his first chance.
1: Yes, yeah, so the odds are he has made an act of perfect contrition, and mm-hmm. so and and you talk about his history, right? Does the history have no value? No. The history has tremendous value because it has reordered his whole personality mm-hmm. such that if he were to commit uh, an outrageous act like that, the odds that he could form an act of perfect contrition quickly are very high compared to, say, the habitual adulterer who's not contrite at all, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's why, even for somebody like this, the way you've described them, I I wouldn't use the word presume, because that that would be presumptuous of me, right? (laughs) But there is yet a cause for great hope for the salvation of such a soul, even if that soul doesn't make it to confession. Now, let us say you do have someone who is, as you've described him, well-advanced in the path to holiness and virtue, who does, in fact, commit a mortal sin and is not repentant, which, again, that part, like, I can almost not conceive it. Like, if he still has the virtue of faith— and has tasted the heavenly gift, as mm. the, the New Testament puts it, why would he not form an act of contrition? Like, I, that, I, I, I really can almost not even conceive of that as a moral possibility. Yeah. But let's say he does. Let's say he fails. to. Would he be lost? Yes, he'd be lost. Um, would that mean that all of his life of virtue was of, of no avail? Well, it wouldn't avail for his salvation— but it doesn't mean that it wouldn't have some value in the kingdom of God or to his loved ones or to the church or to God. Great email,
0: TJ. Thanks so much for sending it to us on this uh, mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Hey, tomorrow night be sure to join us for EWTN News In Depth. That's coming up tomorrow night and every Friday night at 8pm Eastern. Your host, Monse Alvarado hosting a roundtable discussion series with in-depth interviews unapologetically examining the analyzes, important issues, news, and events from an authentically Catholic perspective. Again, that's tomorrow night, 8pm Eastern on EWTN radio and television. Be sure and check that out. Here's an email Now from Michael in Minnesota. Dr. Anders, many times you have been asked about the quote, worship of Mary. Your response is that Catholics do not worship Mary because worship involves an act of sacrifice. I agree, we don't sacrifice animals to Mary, nor is the sacrifice of the Mass directed to her. But I have heard that Catholics should offer their hearts to Mary. Wouldn't that be an act of sacrifice, similar to offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, which, according to Paul, is spiritual worship? He's quoting uh, Romans 12.1. Also, in researching this for this email, I'm a, I came across the uh, papal encyclical Ad or Ad Diem Illum laticium by Pope Pius X. Article 17 begins, for to be right and good, worship of the Mother of God ought to spring from the heart. How can a pope say this if Catholics do not worship Mary?
1: Yeah, thanks. So it, it 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 boils down to a semantic distinction about the meaning of the English word worship. And in older textbooks, going back to the 19th century and before, you will find the English word worship applied to the veneration of the saints. But if you attend to the language, it's very clear uh What is meant that this is a translation of the uh, of the Latin word dulia as opposed to the Latin word Latria, Latria meaning the kind of worship that one offers to God, dulia meaning basically service, uh-huh. uh, which we now more appropriately translate as veneration. Mm. But if you know that theological distinction between la, uh, Latria and dulia then uh, then then that's what we're talking about. so it's really I mean language changes over time right? Language can mean different things. Sure. In an old Anglican—this is Protestant, of course—Anglican marriage liturgy, they may still say this, I'm not Uh, sure—in the marriage ritual, the spouses promise, uh, with my body I thee worship, right? Which in that context just to me simply means to honor or to venerate. Sure. Okay. Now, when you ask, well, you know, what about consecrating ourselves to Mary? What about giving our hearts to Mary? Well, that would, again, it would be the same way in which, say, one would consecrate one's body to one's spouse or give one's heart to a loved one. It's not, we're not talking about the Latria do to God alone. Michael in Minnesota,
0: thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Carl in Albany, New York. He says, Jesus exhorts us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Well, I have no real enemies, but there are some people I really dislike. How do I pray for these people? What do I ask the Lord for in this case? Thanks, Carl and Albany.
1: Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, St. Thomas helped me so very much with this and similar questions when I first encountered his definition of what love means. And according to St. Thomas, love is not a sentiment. It means uh, that you, you wish for the integral good of another human being, their right? genuine good, and you would like to be in union with them insofar as it's possible in that good. Uh So not any kind of union. Like, let's say, you know, your enemy is a bank robber. You don't have to be in union with him insofar as he's a bank robber, right? Uh, And when you wish good on someone, it doesn't mean that you wish for them whatever they wish for themselves, because, again, the bank robber may wish success in his enterprise of being a bank robber. You don't wish that for him. Wishing the good for the bank robber would be wanting him to come to repentance and amend his life. Yeah. So I could—the proper way to love the bank robber is— First of all, wanting him to amend his life and stop being a bank robber, and then a willingness to be in union with him in that particular change of life, right, in that in that reformation of his life. Sure. Well, I mean, surely we can get down with that. I mean, how could I not <laughs> want to cooperate in someone amending his life, yeah, okay? Yeah. Now, the difficulty, of course, would be if I had a great personal animus or, or kind of a, a vengeful attitude against somebody where, hey, I don't want you, like— um, like um, um, uh, Oh, I guess uh, Hamlet's uncle, right? Who he doesn't want to murder him because he finds his uncle in prayer and doesn't want him to go to heaven, right? <laughs> okay. Know? So he refrains for murder because he's waiting for a more opportune time to send his soul to hell, right? Wow. That 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 that's not what we're talking about, right? That's the wrong disposition. Okay. But if you can really, um, uh, you know, if you can really w- will the integral good for another human being, which might mean their repentance. And, uh, and a willingness to be in union with them in that in that respect, then, then you can love them, and you can pray with that in mind. That doesn't mean that you have to... Uh, you, you don't have to will the psychologically impossible, right? So, for example, um, there are people who just naturally don't interest you, and you don't interest them, and you've just got nothing to say to one another, and there's no sin involved. It's just a matter of personality type and historical circumstance. Well, you know, charity towards that person does not require you to, uh, you know, to invite them into your inner circle, right? And and there can, in fact, be a form of injustice in there. And I've seen this happen before in relationships where people impose on another person's sense of Christian duty by making demands on their intimacy that are not warranted, right? And sometimes naive Christians, out of a sense of guilt or duty, will uh, feel pressure to concede that and, and to sort of invite someone into a kind of intimacy that's not really merited, and I don't see that as charity. I see that as really a, as, a, as, a, as an act of injustice on the part of the person that makes those kinds of demands. And those relationships usually end badly, and they're not to either person's good, right? So uh, in, a, in a way that's, a, that's appropriate to your level of intimacy and your social relation and position in life and all of that, mm-hmm. will the good for another person and, and a willingness to be in union with them in that good insofar as it's equitable and, uh, and justice is involved. All right. And we thank you so much uh, for your email. Lynn
0: from Ohio writes to us and she says, uh, two questions, please. The first one is for Tom. (laughs) Okay. What are the hand gestures you are doing with your left hand and to whom are you signaling? I'm going to just lay that out right now. Uh, David is looking at me. He is facing away from the clock. The shot clock S- the shot clock basically you know so I'm letting him know you've got four minutes to answer your question you've got three minutes to answer this question uh, before the music starts playing and that'll give you enough time to you know frame your response in a in a time appropriate manner
1: And you know you you use one that you've never explained to me but that I was able to intuit immediately. You do this this shepherd's crook symbol with your finger that means thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. Well, right. it's it's this is <laughs> it's one, one minute, minute and this and is half of a minute. Exactly. I figured it out the first couple times you did it, but I was like, you know, we've never actually, we've never actually decoded the the system before you know it's just intuitive <laughs> there you go
0: glad to answer that <laughs> for you lynn uh the second question is for you dr anders uh recently a catholic tv host stated quote it is very very probably not the same john that wrote the book of revelation as john the beloved and john who wrote the gospels well i was under the impression all three johns were the same person what is the scholarly opinion on this
1: the scholarly opinion is that they're not the same person okay. right that, that john of patmos is not the author of the fourth, fourth gospel there is a tradition that mm-hmm. associates these books but there, there are too many internal differences of language and theology and style uh to make it probable
0: okay lynn and thank you so much for your question um here's one now from stacy if someone was baptized methodist uh, a woman baptized methodist took the necessary steps to become Catholic, and then got married outside of church to a gentleman that was divorced, will his first marriage have to be annulled in order to have a Catholic ceremony?
1: Let me get this straight. Okay, Methodist woman baptized Methodist. Yep. Underwent the necessary steps to become Catholic. Did she, in fact, become Catholic? Does it say that? Doesn't say. And then she married another man outside the Catholic Church. Yes. Okay. Who was divorced. Who was divorced. Okay, so... And and would he have to get an annulment and for their marriage to be blessed in the Catholic Church? Right. All right. Uh, the, let's take a couple different scenarios. Let's say first of all that she did not herself become Catholic. Okay. So she took she took the necessary steps. She went through RCA, but she was not confirmed and didn't receive ordination. So she's not Catholic. All right. Um, under those circumstances, if she's not Catholic, she has no obligation to marry in the Catholic Church. So so the the marriage is not invalid in virtue of being outside the church. Okay. Because she's outside the church. That doesn't matter. But the fact that he had a previous marriage, that is problematic. Mm. Because Jesus said you can only be married to one person at one time, and you can't get divorced. There is no Christian divorce. And so she would need the annulment, not because she married outside the church, but because we would presume that he's actually married to somebody else. Mm, And until that presumption is removed through an annulment, she can't legally be married to him. All right. Now let's take the situation of a Catholic woman. She actually takes the step to become Catholic. Well, then her marriage to this guy is invalid on two grounds. First of all, she's marrying a guy who is presumptively married to somebody else— uh-huh. Secondly, she's marrying outside the church against the uh, 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 against um, against canon law, where she's required. Canonical form requires her to marry in the church. So it's a double whammy against her.
0: Okay, well there you go. And uh, thank you so much for your question here on EWTN's uh, Call to Communion. A fast-moving hour, I must say, got a whole bunch of questions answered from the mailbag, which is now empty. And we're looking for your email to get that uh, mailbag start to get filled up again. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Don't forget, we do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN, bringing it to you at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, each and every Monday through Friday. You can check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN's Podcast Central. Just uh, go on EWTN.com, click on the word radio, and then look for podcast. On behalf of our fantastic team, including our producer, Mr. Charles Beery, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you next time right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.